Radioland, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LA Review of Books. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So happy to be here. Today on the show, we have Mossed Imadi, an Iranian poet, and Martabel Wasserman, who is an artist, a curator, and a writer interested in a lot of different cool stuff working down in San Pedro. So let's get to it. This is Kate Wolf, and I'm here with my co-host, Medea Ocher. And today we're talking to Mosin Amadi. Mosin is a poet, translator, and filmmaker who was born in Iran in 1976. He's published five books of poetry and translated the work of poets such as Vladimir Holin, Cesar Vallejo, Luis Cernuda, Walt Whitman, Milan Rufus, and others. His documentaries include Dear Antonio, about the poetry of Antonio Gomenita, and A Poet and His Exile, about Luis Cernuda's exile in Mexico, Portugal, and Spain. His first book to be translated in English is Standing on Earth, and it's just out now from Phoneme Media. Thanks for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. So I was thinking maybe we could start by having you read a poem from your new collection. Yes, of course. I prefer to read the first impression in my own language and then reading it in English. The poem is related to our experience in Iran in the wartime, and especially the time of the Iran-Iraq war. It was when I was very young. I had two years when the revolution happened. And uh, after that, it started the war, and eight years of war. مرگ وقتی است که دل نمی تپد و ساعت می تپد. عشق وقتی است که دل می تپد و ساعت نمی تپد. شاید همین قیاس ساده می گفت چرا دوباره به ساعت نگاه کردی. می دانستی انتظار تحمل متراکم ابدیت است و عشق اجاز فانیان ابدیت را شرم سار می کند. اما مرگ منتظر هیچ کس نمی ماند. اصر بلند تابستان بر تابوت ها و برج ها ساعت غروب می کرد. ویرانه ها می دانستند و تو نمی دانستی که جنگ انتظار را بی اعتبار می کند و حفظ حیات تمام حقیقت می شود. او مرده بود. بی تو گریخته بود. یا تو دیگر عاشق نبودی. مردگان جواب نمیدادند زندگان میگریختند و عشق دیگر به نبض ساعت میتپید now in english version this is when the heart does not beat and the clock beats love is when the heart beats and the clock does not beat perhaps this simple comparison explains why you glanced at your watch You knew that waiting is the dense endurance of eternity, and love, the miracle of mortals, make eternity ashamed, but this does not wait for anybody. The long summer afternoon was going down on coffins and clock towers. The ruin knew, and you did not know, that war makes waiting invalid and saving life the whole truth. Was she dead? As she fled without you, or were you not in love anymore? The dead were not answering, the living were escaping, and love from then on 
beat within the pulsing of a clock. Beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So you've been in exile from Iran since 2009. Yes, yes. I left okay. Iran in 2009 forever somehow, you know. There is no return, it seems, for me until this regime is there. Before that, I was living between Iran and Spain because my first book of poetry, before I have any book published in Persian in Iran, was published in Spanish and in Spain. Mm -hmm. So probably Spain is the country of my poetry. Uh, so uh, you were writing in Spanish? No, I was okay. writing in Persian, but I had the chance that a very great Spanish poet came to Iran to visit my master, Ahmad Shamlu, probably the most important poet of the last century of Persian language. She was translating his poetry and she came to Iran and in his house we met each other and she got interested later on to my poetry and translated my poetry to Spanish and published it in Spain before I have any book published in the country. So I was visiting Spain and in 2009 I felt that if I stay I will have the same probably destiny of some of my friends who have been killed or in jail there. You know, so I left the country to Finland and there I studied a master degree in digital culture because I am a computer engineer at another side of my life. And after that, uh, I was working in Czech poetry, Eastern European poetry was very important for me because of the similarity of the experience we had in Iran and East Europe. And I was touched by East European poets. So uh, I left to Prague. So you see a connection. You've translated some Czech than Eastern European poets. Is there a poetry of exile, in your opinion? I mean, are there shared characteristics? I guess that the writing itself starts with exile. You know, a writer is an exiled person. But the time that he starts writing, you know, it's in exile. Because the language of poetry, for example, is not the common language. We are using somehow a common language, but the language is the language of subjectivity, not the communication. You know, mostly the language comes to have a subjective function instead of having a communicative function. There is where you make the language to think. And in the same level, you are exiled in writing poetry because you go to another aspects of the language itself. So everything starts with the language, you know. But another part of it is our own experience of the human condition that we were living there, you know. As a kid, you see the consequence of a revolution robbed by the fanatics because the question of the Iranian revolution was not Islamic, you know. The question was somehow anti-monarchy and little by little it had been robbed by the fanatics like Khomeini. So what happens there is that you see the consequences of the fights, your family, you know, all are separated, they're all, everything is teared up, you know. And the political fights influences even the manner your father speaks to your mother and many other things like that. And then war comes, civil war and then war, and you have to leave them, you know, and you see somehow that this word is not your word. And can you tell us a little bit about your family? My family is a very strange, you know, combination, you know, in itself. From my mother's side, there are some musicians, there are some theater directors. One of my uncles studied in the U.S. at his doctorate in theater, for example. Or uh, my grandfather was kind of feudal. We owned a lot of lands, you know, and it was very important. He had a very huge library in his library. I remember my childhood, my grandfather's mother's side. His library had 
something about 3,000 books there. And it was my joy to read those books, especially translation of the Russian literature, translation of the French literature. You know, I read first Akhmatova in my grandfather's house in the village, you know. We were farmers somehow. And imagining that side is interesting. But another side, my father was a kind of Ayatollah, a very fanatic Islamist in there. So I raised in a kind of the family, very strange. And what happens there is that when it was the time in the beginning of the war, always wars start with the discourse of nationalism and things like that, you know, and they use the nationalist ideas to propagate the war. So when I was six, seven, eight, I was feeling, you know, very touched by Khomeini, you know, but mm -hmm. when little by little I start reading books, you know, especially in reading Dostoevsky, reading Tolstoy and many others, you touch other words and you get separated from your father's idea. And then I guess that when I was 13, the fight between my father and me started. And so we had very bad clash and fights and when I was 16. That happens because of my first experience of love. I was very Islamist before, you know, as a kid. But little by little, I discovered that there is something else in the world, you know. And so I fell in love with a very beautiful girl from North. It was in poetry festivals there, and she was older than me. And with that experience, I started to turn to a mystic somehow. So I was reading, you know, like a crazy, the works of the old mystic, Persian mystics, and little by little I discovered some other parts. I read Marx, I read Lenin and many others, you know, at first I turned to be a Marxist, you know, and then I felt the question of the authority and the question of the human liberty, this very important question, then I turned to anarchist. So, the fight between my family and me was a kind of... So I was in exile in my own home. Right. <laughs> so what pushed you into true exile in 2009? What were the circumstances that have led you to leave Iran permanently? Yes, just consider that from the age of 16, uh, I come to kind of the political consciousness. So I could not bear this country and the foundations uh, of this sort of regime inside the country. So I started fighting with different ways. I was active politically from then on. And in the time of the university movement in Iran in 1999, I was very active there. So this sort of activism in the side of your poetry and other stuff makes little by little the space of danger for you. And you're watched. I had several problems, interrogations, things like that. So in 2009, when it came to the Green Movement, I felt that we have to be very strongly confronting that government and that system. You know. And okay, at the time, I fought something about two months in the street at you know, exactly tear gas, bullets and everything, you know, and, and then I felt that if I stay more, they will arrest me. And by arresting me, I was feeling that many of my friends will be in danger. So I left. <laughs> and do you find when you were living in Iran and publishing poetry there, was your poetry subject to censorship or are poets able to fly under the radar in a way that other writers might not be in Iran? Poetry is the subject of censorship in Iran most of the time. My own master, Ahmad Shamru's poetry, was banned from publishing something about 12, 13 years. And we could not name him even in any festival. You know, I was expelled from a festival of poetry just by citing a poem of him in the beginning of my reading. So he was a dangerous man for the government. He writes to Khomeini that, hey, stupid man, I'm not your enemy. In my existence, your existence disappears. 
I sort of the person, the fighter, there were problems. You know, my own poetry is more philosophical, not very direct political poetry. I don't write, you know. But that was also subject of the censor, you know, or my translation were subject of the censorship, you know. For example, when I translated Nikita Stanisko to Persian, you know, the Romanian poet, the book appeared okay. It's not the same size that you gave to the publisher. Some poems are out from the book. But even they changed the poem, you know. For example, Stanisko says that we were making love in the attic and they published, we were reading, uh, <laughs> we were reading uh, poetry of love in, in the attic. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> they know. have a way with metaphor. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes, that's because Iranian cinema is very metaphorical, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what's happened in many places under the dictatorship. You go to the Czech poetry, you go to Polish poetry, Romanian poetry, all are metaphorical, you know. So that's what happened to us. No, not much. My poetry was not concerned of the that much problems for me. Mostly my problems were my activism ah, in yeah. that mm-hmm. field, you know. And do you keep in touch with your family? Are they still Yes, of in course. Iran? Of course. Of course. I keep in touch with my father, mother, and also my one sister who lives in Iran. My another sister lives in Sweden. My brother lives here in the US. He's a professor of the North Carolina University. Mm. So, okay, somehow we are all in separated in different places. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about your translator, Lynn Coffin? Yes, I have to tell you, it's a very beautiful story. There was a Czech poet that I got to read that poem of him, The Seven Elegy, when I was 23. Mm-hmm. And I was touched truly by that poem. The poem speaks about the situation of rise of the Hitler. He was Jew and he was killed when he was 23, just six days before the ghetto started in Prague. So I always wanted to translate him. And later on, when the Islamic government killed one of my good friends by torture in jail, Oda Sabr, I felt that I cannot do anything of my own poetry and I have to do something. And I translated all the elegies of Orton to Persian at the time. And it was a rare accident because I speak of Lin in my prologue. Another translator of this same poet is my own translator to Spanish. I got to know Orton through that. And Lynn get the Academy, the American Academy Prize because of her translation of this same poet. And this was the poet who made all of us connected somehow and his spirit from the time of the rise of Hitler <laughs> was living and was somehow leading all of us. One important thing is that narcissism is what he was seeing at the time in the rise of Hitler, you know. That's a very important question that we have to address now in the world. Okay, Lynn now is in Georgia mm-hmm. these days. She won this National Translation Prize of the Georgia for translating Rostavelli, the Saba Prize, and now she's there translating other Georgian poets to English, you know. And it's very interesting that we all have some such feelings because Lynn's first husband was a Czech exile here, wow. you know, and that makes her connected to the Czechs. For me, my own personal experience in Iran which was related a lot to the Eastern European experience. So we all somehow get connected and then read my poetry and then she liked it and wanted to work on it. So she visited me several times in Mexico and then we worked together on many poems. And what was it about narcissism that he discussed in his poem or noticed? The fact was that he's asking the narcissist to forgive us, 
to have mercy on us, you know. Yeah. Because what's happening in the world is something like that, you know. These warmongers would never have mercy on anybody, you know. And he was seeing that same situation happening there. These are the poems profoundly sad, but uh, in the same time, Orton believes that there may be a salvation, even if God forgot us. <laughs> we should mention that you're here visiting the U.S. right now from Mexico. So when did you arrive in the U.S.? It was in January. But since you've been here, a ban has been instated against Iranian nationals. So you might not be returning to the U.S. after this trip. Yes, that's a very sad news I heard here and I just got shocked because first, this has a, something else as a background, you know. I remember the visa waiver program. Last year, I was invited to give a talk in the U.S. about my master, this poet of liberty and freedom in Iran, that one who fought against the Islamic regime you know, all his life and against Shah as well. I was invited to give a talk in New York about him, and I asked for the visa, and they just kept silent and they didn't give me the visa. And it was the time that visa waiver program was made. And I guess that it started the bans that Trump start is originated in that visa waiver program that I wrote about it and I did interviews with some known newspapers like well, Proceso and the other in the Mexico, you know, about that. And when I came here, it came to be realized this way is a very brutal way of realizing, you know, the program of the visa waiver program. I was feeling very sad that from different aspects, you know. It has a very sad consequence in my own life, you know, because I was not sure that my brother can visit me any longer, you know, even he can visit me. You are living in exile, you don't have access to your own mother, your own father, you right. cannot meet them. So the only chance, I haven't met my mother for something about eight years, you know, seven, eight years. So it's very sad sight for us exiled who are fighting against that legend. And in the same time, the... U.S. government, you know, also ban you from entering to that country and also take you the chance of visiting your brother, your parts of your family or things like that. That happens not only to me. I have several Iranian friends of mine who are academics, you know, they are okay, the time that we studied in Iran, we had a lot of good friends, very good intellectual and educated people who left country and they came to U.S. searching for new home because of the bad conditions. So they were not, none of them were supporters of the Islamic regime. No. They mostly were very educated people who wanted to make another home. And I was thinking that this is what U.S. is about. But now it seems that the U.S. is turned not to be U.S. the same way, right. you know. And this comes right as your first book has been translated into English. Um. Yes, language and poetry is borderless. I do believe in it. I remember one very interesting story about Langston Hughes you know, in Iran. You know. Ahmad Shamlu translated Langston Hughes to Persian. And I remember he changed one line of Langston Hughes, which is very important poem in this time in the U.S., let's America be America again, you know. It's right. exactly parallel to Trump saying, let's America great again. Mm -hmm. But what Langston Hughes was asking was that let's America be America again. Shamblu changed the word America to homeland because he wanted to speak about the fact that Iran is not my homeland. So let's 
this homeland to be my homeland again, you know. So right. this change of Shamblu and Langston Hughes poetry actually made Langston Hughes to speak like a Persian poet. Now, mm. these days in the U.S., I feel the same pain and suffering Hughes was feeling in this same poet. And I constantly repeating it, and I think that we have to return back to those ideals which on the hands of the companies, Wall Streets, and the politicians are being lost. You know, we need utopia, and we need you know, hope. <laughs> yes, very badly. And poetry, too. Yes. It's like, I guess that there is no resistance possible without poetry. I do believe in it because the first part that the resistance come to realize itself is the language, mm-hmm. you know. And the fact is that language is very dangerous, but very interesting phenomenon. It can make us sick because the stereotypes are a language sickness. When I was living in Finland first, when they are asking me, where are you from? And I was telling that I am Iranian. Mm-hmm. Many people, just because of those stereotypes, were thinking that, oh, a terrorist, you know. So that is to say that those languages are sick because they're just listening to one word and then they refer it to a metaphor of the terrorist. But what sort of the terrorist I can be? You know? right. I'm a simple writer, you know, and I loved words. I traveled and lived and worked on word poetry, all over translating them and giving my language the possibility to embrace Whitman, to embrace Holland and many other poets. So what act of the terrorism there? This the first step is that the language is sick by stereotypes or many other sickness that the language can have. And then it starts other things that makes the poetry important. Poetry is important because it intensifies the consciousness. It's not useful like arms or like money or things like that. It's very useful in intensifying consciousness. Many wonderful phenomena we are living daily are poetical phenomena, like friendship. Friendship is a poetical phenomenon, you know. Love is a poetical phenomenon. Poets collaborated all along of the history in constructing a phenomenon called compassion, called love, called friendship. So daily we need it, but we ignore it because it doesn't make money. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. Well, Mohsin Amadi, thank you so much for coming on the show and we hope you will be back. Thank you very much. much. I hope always to come back here because I have wonderful friends, American and Iranian friends in this country. And that country could be a wonderful country if it comes to listen again to Whitman and Langston Hughes. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. We've been speaking with Mohsin Amadi. He's the author most recently of Standing on Earth, which is his new poetry collection out from Phoneme Media. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. Karina Longworth, the creator and host of You Must Remember This, the amazing podcast about old Hollywood, is back in studios with us to recommend a book. Karina, What would you like to recommend? I wanted to recommend a book called Slow Days, Fast Company by Eve Babbitts. Hollywood classic. Yeah, I think that some people might know her better for her first book called Eve's Hollywood, which is stories 
mostly autobiographical stories about her life growing up in Hollywood, sort of on the fringes, going to Hollywood High. And like it's about basically 1950s Los Angeles and what that was like. But this book is also autobiographical stories. It plays out like a series of disconnected, but all in the same world short stories. The protagonist, the sort of Eve character is a little bit older, like late 20s. The background is the 1970s. It's stories of debauchery and... My um, favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, and love and relationships and all just like set against this really well-characterized Los Angeles. That sounds fantastic. Uh, will you remind our listeners what that's called again? Slow Days, Fast Company by Eve Babbitts. Karina Longworth, thank you for coming back. Sure, thanks. Kate Wolf, and I'm here with my co-host Medea Ocher, and we're talking with Martabel Wasserman. Martabel is an artist, a writer, and a curator living in Los Angeles. She's the founding editor of Recaps Magazine, which is a topically curated bi-monthly publication that investigates the intersections of virtual community and embodied activism. Martabel is also an adjunct professor at Cal State Long Beach and the curator of community engagement at the Angels Gate Cultural Center, which is down in San Pedro. Martabel, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Martabel, will you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? I mean, it sounds like you do a lot. I feel like everything I do is at this intersection of organizing, whether it's writing or having an artistic practice and also working as a curator. Mm -hmm. And I suppose working with students, too, is a different type of organizing. I see that as a connection between the different things. And you also enjoy art and activism, would you say? Yes. And so I'm wondering, which did you come to first? Did you start off studying politics and then get interested in art, vice versa? Or how did you come to the work you do? I was a double major in women, gender, and sexuality and visual art. And my undergraduate thesis was on ACT UP. This was pre-Occupy. So I was really looking for examples of how people were using art and activism in a way that was potent and effective. And I was fortunate that there was an exhibition that was a retrospective of ACT UP happening on my campus my senior year, curated by Helen Molesworth, who's now at MOCA. So I was able to work on that project as a student interested in documenting what was going on. So I was able to interview a lot of wonderful people like Sarah Schulman and Greg Bordowitz and sort of talk to them from my own position of longing for activism And I definitely got schooled in that process, and it was very humbling. How so? Because they were like, you are, like, nostalgic for this thing where people were dying. Mm -hmm. You want this kind of community that came out of an urgency of death. So that was a very humbling experience to try to write about that and theorize that and long for that from the vantage point of being a very sheltered and privileged undergraduate. Then I moved to Los Angeles to study art at UC Irvine, and around that same time, Occupy Wall Street happened. And how were you involved with Occupy Wall Street? I was involved. I was able to participate in Occupy Long Beach, because that's actually where I lived at the time, and Occupy LA. And being a grad student, I had the mobility to go back and forth and participate and actually take that time. My girlfriend actually lived there and worked full-time, so that was a very different experience. I was a little bit more of a tourist. I wasn't part of any committees, but I was really interested in 
collecting as much ephemera as I could, as being as present as I could, and taking it all in. And that's sort of where Recaps came out of, is I was looking for a context for art and politics and community that wasn't about the aesthetics of politics in a white cube, but bringing together people who are doing work on the ground and putting it in conversation with things that would be more traditionally associated with with visual art in a gallery. I wonder if when you're kind of bringing activism and art together, and especially thinking about something like ACT UP, where I know that a rift in ACT UP was that some people thought these big demonstrations that had an amazing visual element, like mm-hmm. the huge condom, I think, on Jesse Helms's house. Or I don't know if it was Jesse and Helms. And in ACT UP Paris, too, there was a huge column on the obelisque. Right. Oh, yeah. um, wow. That those kind of things ended up to them, even though to me that seems like a really exciting thing that they did that ended up to some people seeming like a total waste of time and that they thought that ACT UP should go more in a position of actually working with scientists, doing more policy. So I was wondering, has that rift ever occurred to you? Have you ever struggled with an idea of the aesthetics versus actually just kind of the boring, more mundane aspects of activism? Yeah, I struggle with that all the time. I mean, even just wanting to take selfies or pictures of actions as a way to document them and spread them. And then know, like, for example, I was at the airport this weekend where there was mass demonstrations against deportations and the ban. And I was only able to be there for a short period of time because I have two dogs and I had another (laughs) commitment. (laughs) But I was really dedicated to taking pictures and documenting it. And of course, I feel a tension between wanting to create some sort of representation to share and actually do the work of occupying an airport and being there to the end and sitting through the riot cops coming and all that. And, you know, I was observing that from my car. So I struggle with that tension between the work and the representation often. And in terms of thinking about science and policy and advocacy versus creating visuals, that's also something that I think about a lot working in the context of a nonprofit and a community art space in terms of advocacy for the arts and the executive director, Angels Gate, Amy Erickson, does a lot for arts advocacy. So that gives me more of a place to work on the content and think less about the policy. So it's a good balance. Mm. And tell us about Angels Gate. I was reading that it was started in the 1970s by a group of artists. It kind of started as an Occupy movement. It's actually an old military base from World War One that was decommissioned after World War Two, And artists came and occupied it and turned it into studios in the 80s, I believe. We need to work on our history. And what I love about it is that it is on such a layered and loaded landscape because it was a sacred site for the Tongva. And it's funny because it's on this hill and people think it's like sacred because it's on this hill. But I learned from one of my predecessors, Marshall Astor, that the hill was actually constructed to fortify the coast. So that's not what made it sacred, that it was this high point. It was just near the water. So there's that deep time history. There's this history of militarization. And of course, there was a big Japanese community there that was removed during World War II. Now it's the Port of America, Mm -hmm. otherwise known as the Port of Los Angeles. So global capital is very visible there. And on the other hand, you can see whales and dolphins and seals. Right. And San Pedro is not a wealthy community either. No, there's definitely this talk about it becoming gentrified. 
But luckily, I mean, you can't like really get a cold brew coffee there, as I say. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that's a wonderful thing. And to be in Los Angeles and feel removed from that. So what's your role at the center? My official role is curator of community engagement, which basically means I'm in charge of the gallery, which is in an old military building. And I also collaborate with a lot of other groups and schools and nonprofits, et cetera, to develop content. And is there a specific kind of art that you feel drawn to or that engages with politics in a way that you find most compelling? Given that this landscape has all of these layers, I'm really interested in the site responsive. Mm -hmm. I'm currently working on a project for Pacific Standard Time LALA with a co-curator, Raquel Gutierrez, and we are commissioning six original site-responsive performances and social practice projects titled Coastal Border. People are looking at how the coast has been fortified as a border, and it's really great because people are starting at the coast and going in through the Inland Empire and looking at how goods travel and the environmental impact of that. So I think that in these times, starting very locally is one useful strategy, and that's sort of what I've been trying to do there, invite people to come explore the landscape, think about it, and engage with it and produce new work. We've heard the local call many times, actually, and and that sounds right. I mean, I think of it on the level of like the dirt and the rocks at the beach that are covered in oil, you know, trying to really get to it at a granular level and then then go outwards. Maybe you could tell us about the magazine that you used to edit, which is called Recaps. Which stands for Reclaim Culture, Art, Politics, and Sexuality. And it was sort of always meant to be an archive of materials, and now that's how it exists as an archive. I see. But I was interested in bringing together people in different fields and in different places to think about this topic. As someone who's very interested in feminist and queer history, I wanted the re to be a part of it because I did not want to reinvent the wheel. I was looking at examples like heresies and LTTR and trying to re-inhabit that sort of structure of an art and politics magazine. So again, those are small Mm -hmm. magazines that were print magazines. Pre-internet. Pre-internet. And so what was the path that the magazine took you started by yourself or with a group of other editors or I had an idea for it and then I called in other editors who had different areas of expertise not to use the word expertise I don't know if that exists really but different people working in different fields and the idea was to kind of have a virtual community as I was relocating to Los Angeles and trying to find that and As you may know, if you move to Los Angeles, it's hard to find community at first, and I was really hungry for that. So I was trying to enact that through this sort of virtual conversation. And we had a few IRL, in real life events, uh, (laughs) collaborating with the One Archives, and we did something at Human Resources. Um, And those were really great because people who contributed were able to come together and in space and talk about issues. And so is writing, and editing, are those things still kind of a part of your artistic practice or are you put those aside for the time being? Those are definitely still part of my artistic practice and I'm excited to be part of a new online magazine called Yes Fems that actually came out of an event at Human Resources last year. And Human Resources mm-hmm. is a small art space just for our listeners yeah. who don't know about it. In Los Angeles. Okay, so okay. Yes Fems is your new project now. No, that's Samantha Cohen okay. is the editor of that, but I'll have a new piece of writing uh, and text in that. And what is it on? It's on the aesthetics of seashells. 
And it's inspired by working in San Pedro and thinking about fossil fuel. So is there a political issue that you find that is really driving you right now or that you are finding compelling in terms of the work that you are producing, either artistic or in terms of the organization that you do? I actually feel dizzy by how much is happening and thinking about what it means to be in solidarity with struggles that are not mine and to show up and participate in things. And so I feel pulled in a lot of different directions in terms of my own work and the kind of work I want to support. Mm -hmm. We have um, an upcoming show that really looks at the issues of housing in Los Angeles, which I think is really important. And thinking about that as it relates to being an artist and gentrification and what our role is and what we need to take responsibility for. I think about our dependence on fossil fuel every day as I drive past the refinery and I want to think about how we can make work that provides alternatives and isn't just didactic. And I think, again, for me, bringing it to like the level of the soil or the sand in San Pedro is is a useful starting point because it is dizzying all that we're facing right now. Have things for you changed after the election in terms of your own focus with your work or has it felt harder to make work, more urgent? What's changed for you since November 9th? On the one hand, it's really empowering to be able to say what you really think and feel because the stakes are so high. So to be able to critique things like neoliberalism and not be afraid that it's going to lose the election to this awful person that we have because now we have this awful person. So we need to talk about how we got into this mess and look at the systemic crisis that we're facing and take responsibility for how we're all implicated in that. So I think that's kind of a silver lining, which I don't take for granted. And I think a silver lining is is not a given, but something you have to work towards. It's so recent. Yeah, yeah you're still working through it. But I think working on Pacific Standard Time, LALA, the stakes feel different. They always felt high. But again, it's like being able to say things that have always been going on because deportations are not a new thing. But to be able to rally more people around that because their eyes are open and they're aware so we can talk about migration and immigration and citizenship to a wider audience. And how have you dealt with these issues in your teaching or with your students? Ooh, teaching is hard because you don't want to get in trouble. With yes. <laughs> um, but I'm currently teaching 20th century photography. Okay. And it's really important to me to start with talking about how visual surveillance and visual culture produce ideas of citizenship, how they produce ideas of landscape and how we think about land and thus imperialism and the ability to conquer time and space and how photography has played a role in that. I'm really excited to revisit some of my favorite thinkers on fascism and present mm -hmm. that in a historical context <laughs> without making comparisons too explicit myself, but making space for students to do that. And Cal State Long Beach is a really diverse community. Uh, I love being a part of it. We've been speaking with Martabelle Wasserman, who's an artist, a curator, and a writer. Thanks so much for coming on, Martabelle. Thank you, Martabelle. Thank you so much for having me. We have 
we've come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 